Well, we are continuing our study through Psalm 119 this morning. Today we're looking at the 13th stanza, which is verses 97 to 104, but I've decided to take two weeks on this stanza. We haven't done that before, but we're doing it this time. In fact, this morning we're only going to consider one verse. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. As I began studying through this stanza, it's like I just couldn't get past that verse. There was just so many things that came to mind and what could be behind that confession. Oh, how I love your law. Just so much there. Matter of fact, there's a number of verses that, that you might think about naturally as being one of the better known verses of Psalm 119. This is one of them. Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. So we're going to look at, look at that particular verse a little more closely this morning. Now, the psalmist, really all through this psalm, has been expressing his love, his respect, his reverence, his commitment to the word of God, the law of God. It's his full trust in those commandments of God that has been crucial to being able to navigate his life through a culture that's been very hostile to his faith. The word has given him a clear standard to know what was right versus what was wrong. The word has given him direction on how he's supposed to live. The word has given him hope. The word gave him joy, even in the times of affliction. And the psalmist has just closed the 12th stanza by saying this in verse 96, I have seen a limit to all perfection. Your commandment is exceedingly broad. So as he diligently considered the testimonies of God, he saw quite clearly the imperfection, we could even say the vanity of the world, had become even more clear to him. But at the same time, he saw the broad applications of God's word to every aspect of life. So it makes sense that he would begin the next stanza with a proclamation of his great love for God's law. How often have you ever had that same thought yourself? How often have we might, maybe we've spoken it to the Lord, maybe to another person, have had something about love for God's law? I have to admit it's very few and far between in my life. comes into my prayers occasionally, but it really should be more often. And so actually, it may be even worth the question, asking the question, should believers have a love for God's law? Um, I mean, the more I thought about that, the more I felt it was important to consider what the psalmist is proclaiming here and give more detailed study to this verse and not just kind of fit it in with the other, with the stanza as a whole. Now, this one verse easily divides itself into two sections, two ideas. The first has to do with a love for God's law, first section. Second is the application of that love for his law, which is his meditation all the day. So our first point this morning, you can find on your outline, which says a love for God's law is a love for God himself. A love for God's law is a love for God himself. After the phrase, oh, how I love your law, the New American Standard Version has placed an exclamation point. Probably a lot of versions do that. Now, the Hebrew did not include punctuation, but the exclamation mark is really helpful to communicate what the psalmist is saying and how he is saying it. That word, oh, how, is an interrogative that is used to introduce exclamations of wonder or of indignation. In this case, it introduces an exclamation 
of wonder. In the preceding stanza, the psalmist had talked about what a firm foundation he had in the word of God. He said back in verse 89, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. So he's, he's acknowledged a heaven-like stability to God's word that was the complete opposite of the upheaval and uncertainty that he found in the world. He also recognizes that God's word was forever settled because God himself was faithful from generation to generation. So in other words, God's word can be trusted because God can be trusted. And in the preceding stanza also, the psalmist had spoken of the sufficiency of God's word to actually address various issues of his life. So it makes perfect sense, and it fits in the flow here, that he would be moved to make an emotional confirmation about his love for God's law. The word for law here in verse 97 is the word Torah. That word is especially applied to the first five books of the Bible. The Jews use that to describe, to speak of the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures. And according to Graham Scoggy, Scroggy, that word Torah can be translated to mean the revelation of the will of God for the life of men. The revelation of the will of God for the life of man. So it's of vital importance that we understand what is meant by this law here. It's also important to note that a genuine love for the word of God will be directly connected to a genuine love for the God of the word because God reveals much of himself in his word. He reveals his law. He reveals his wisdom. You find promises in the word. You find fulfillments of those promises. He reveals himself as the triune God. He reveals the provision for salvation that has been made for sinners and so on. So many things that are revealed. So a love for the Lord is going to be vitally connected with a love for his word. So let's take some time to think about what, is, what it is about God's law that should lead believers to express love for his law. First is this. In his law, God reveals his majesty his righteousness, his goodness, and how man is to love God and people. Now, the reason I mention majesty first is really because of what happened when the Lord first revealed the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel. Moses actually reminds the people of Israel of this in Deuteronomy 4, 10 to 14. He's speaking to the group that's getting ready to go into the promised land, but he's reminding them of what had happened earlier. <coughs> in a generation earlier. He says this, Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horab, Mount Horab, when the Lord said to me, Assemble the people to me that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the very heart of the heavens, darkness, cloud, and thick gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form, only a voice. So he declared to you his commandment, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. Now the covenant that Moses speaks of here is uh, spoken of as the Mosaic Covenant. It's a covenant that especially focuses on God's law. Ten Commandments are the focal point and considered the basic summary of God's moral law. 
And in conjunction with God revealing his law, he reveals himself in great and fearful majesty. We also know from Exodus 19, there were claps of thunder, there were flashes of lightning, the whole mountain quaked violently, and God spoke within the thunder. So he's clearly reminding the people of his majestic holiness and power. There is no one like him. He is high and lifted up and glorious in every way. And his law reveals that to us. One of the things it reveals is his majesty. The law also reveals his holy standard for righteousness. It was perfectly clear that it was obviously God who was speaking these commandments to the people. And he made, known, made, made these known in words they could understand. And this is God's standard of what is right and what is wrong. This is not the standard of a culture that can often change from generation to generation. God's law tells us that God is righteous. God's law also reveals, it, reveals that God is good. Over in Romans chapter 7, Paul is speaking of the law of God, and he speaks of God's law as being good. His commandments require only what is good in itself. They are not unreasonable. They are not unhelpful obligations. God's law is good. Therefore, the keeping of God's law is what is best. His law is good from every possible angle. When you think about it, the reason that we sin against God's law is we kind of reject that idea that his law is good and best for us in every situation. For example, we might think, well, keeping the Sabbath day holy is really kind of inconvenient in my schedule. Obeying authorities really limits things I really want to do. Refraining from lust is just unrealistic. Being content with what we have is just not reasonable. But the reality is, is that God's law is good. It is good. It is always what is best. And in God's law, he reveals to us how we're supposed to love him. The first four commandments are directed to how we are to love God. The second six commandments are directed to how we should love people, how we relate to people. So his law reveals to us how to love God how to love people. So for all those reasons, those are some very good reasons to say, oh, how I love your law because of what it reveals to me about who you are. Second, in his law, God shows man his great need by exposing his sin and pronouncing condemnation upon him. Every human being is under the obligation to keep God's law. Adam, of course, the first man, was under obligation to, go, to keep God's law. And so are we because Adam is the head of all mankind, and we all fit in that category of mankind. And as we noted in the last point, God's law reveals God's standard for what is right. And that's the standard we are all obligated to keep. But we all know that we fail to do that. The Apostle Paul makes that reality very clear to us. I want to read with for you for you from Romans 3 19 and 20 where Paul says now we know that whatever the law says it speaks to those who are under the law which is us and every all, all mankind it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God 
because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for it's through the law that comes the knowledge of sin. So the law tells us how to be just or how to be righteous in God's sight, but it's a standard nobody can reach. So the law of God exposes our sin and confirms that we are, in fact, accountable to him. And God's law also confirms that since we're guilty of breaking his law, we have to endure the condemnation, the judgment that comes from breaking his law. In Romans 8, 118, Paul says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. So we are all guilty, and we are also, therefore, all under God's wrath. God's law makes that clear to us. Now, that's bad news, to be sure. But it's bad news you really need to be aware of. We've got to be aware of this. I mean, it keeps us from the deception that as long as we are mostly good, God will be fine with that. That is not true. God is not fine with mostly good. God is only fine with perfectly good and righteous. And so it's a blessing to know beforehand, before we have to stand before God and to give an account of our life, it's a blessing to know beforehand that we can't measure up because if you stand before God and you have that idea, well, I've been mostly good, so that's good enough for you, right? That's going to be a rude awakening. So even though it's bad news, it's good to know it beforehand. So that bad news from God's law sets us up, though, for good news, which is also very much connected with God's law. So we need to see next. In his law, God reveals himself as the deliverer who accomplished salvation for sinners in the Messiah. One of the best things I ever did was memorize uh, Exodus 21 to 17, which is the Ten Commandments. I come back to those passages often. Verses 1 and 2 say, And God spoke these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So right here in the preface to the Ten Commandments, we see several things. We're reminded first that these are the actual words of the triune God. It says God spoke all these things. They're his words. We're also told that the sovereign Lord, Jehovah God, is a God who has relationship with his true children. I am the Lord your God. And we also learn that he's a redeemer. He's a deliverer. I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So he's especially speaking there of their slavery in Egypt. And he's the one who delivered them out of that slavery. Of course, that deliverance was, uh, was focused from them, especially with, that, with what we speak of in Egypt. But that's really a type of salvation that he provides for believers who are in bondage to sin and under God's condemnation. And it's one of the things that points us to the promise of the Messiah, the one who was prophesied to be the Savior. So from the beginning, we are pointed to the Deliverer who was to come, the beginning of the Ten Commandments, the introduction of the Ten Commandments. We're, we're pointed to the Deliverer who was to come. Another important reason to say, oh, how I love your law. 
Shows me I'm a sinner, but you're a God who delivers sinners. So what does the law of God have to do with the salvation Jesus accomplished for sinners? It has everything to do with it. Several things here. First, we have to see that Jesus Christ was born under the law as a covenant, and he obeyed it perfectly. After Paul made it clear in Romans 3 that the law exposed man's sin and pronounced condemnation upon us, we read this in verse 21 of Romans 3. Paul says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So there is a righteousness now that is available to man apart from, his, from man's own keeping of that law. It's the righteousness that Jesus Christ earned when he came to the earth. In Romans 5.19, we read this. He says, as through one man's disobedience, and that one man is speaking of Adam, as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, were the many, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Well, this obedience of the one is speaking of the obedience of Jesus Christ. Well, what did he obey? He obeyed the perfect law of God. As a man, Christ was born under the law as a covenant he was obligated to keep. He was the second Adam. But unlike, but not like the first Adam, as the second Adam, he perfectly obeyed that good and righteous law. Important part of understanding what Christ did for us is that he obeyed perfectly the law of God. That's good news for sinners regarding God's law here. Second, we need to see that Jesus Christ endured the condemnation that the law requires for sinners when he died on the cross. Continuing the paragraph I was looking at earlier from Romans 3, it says this, Christ, he speaks of Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood. It's not a word that we use often. You probably have not used it at all this week. I wouldn't be surprised if you found no place to include propitiation in your conversation this week. But it's a very important word. Propitiation means wrath bearer, the one who bears wrath. So Christ endured the wrath of God on the cross. He didn't endure God's wrath because he was guilty of sin. As we said, he was perfectly righteous. But he bore the wrath as a substitute for sinners. So he bore the wrath that every sinner deserves because of their sin against God's law. And Jesus Christ was the propitiation, therefore, in our behalf. So he bore the condemnation also that the law required for guilty sinners. Now, since we have all sinned, we all stand condemned before God. We all deserve that eternal wrath. But God in his grace gave his son to endure that condemnation that the law required for sinners while he died on the cross. More good reason to say, oh, how I love your law. Christ endured the wrath that our disobedience deserves that the law says we deserve. And now third, we also see that Jesus Christ accomplished perfect, God-honoring, law-exalting righteousness for all who will believe. 
So as man, Jesus Christ was born under the law, obeyed it perfectly. Therefore, he was a perfect sacrifice for sinners. As such, he could endure the wrath of God that we deserve for sin. So all who believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are fully forgiven of their sin because Christ paid for it. But that isn't all, because every Christian is also justified before God as a gift of his grace in Christ. To be justified is to be considered perfectly righteous according to God's good and holy law. So every believer is declared righteous in the sight of God because of the righteousness of Christ that's imputed to us. And the definition of that righteousness that's been imputed to us is summed up in the law of God. Ten Commandments. That's been imputed to us. Another reason to say, oh, how I love your law. Now, there's one more thing we need to see about deliverance. That's a deliverance that God provided for us in, in the Messiah. Number four, it's by God's grace in Christ that believers are freed from the dominion of sin and are transformed into slaves of righteousness. Transformed into slaves of righteousness. So in God's introduction to the Ten Commandments, he spoke of himself as the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. He says, remember, you were slaves, but I brought you out of that bondage. In much the same way, he frees sinners, or actually in a much greater way, he frees sinners from the dominion of sin and transforms us into slaves of righteousness in Christ. Romans six seventeen, Paul says, thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. So the form of, the God, the form of teaching is talking about there is the gospel truths that we've been speaking of here already. And that salvation, the salvation that, that has been provided for us, provides for us a perfectly righteous Savior who endured the wrath that we deserve in, as our propitiation, includes the fact that we are forgiven of every sin, includes the fact that we have that perfect God-honoring, law-exalted righteousness as our, as our, uh, imputed to us as our standing. But it also means we are no longer slaves of sin. Sin is still something we have to deal with, but we are no longer a slave. If you're a little kid, and some of you, we probably, some of us said this when we were talking to somebody we were upset with, you're not the boss of me. When you are in Christ, sin is not the boss of you anymore. It was, but it's not the boss anymore. But we still deal with it. But now, a change has been happened. Now we're slaves of righteousness. Where does the law of God come into this? God's law is the rule of life. It's the definition of what righteousness is. And our God has transformed every believer into a slave of what is righteous. Don't let the word slave turn you off. Um, most of you, not most of you, just a handful of you, are old enough to remember Bob Dylan's song, which is the one I remember more than any of the rest of them, you got to serve somebody. you got to serve somebody. Everybody serves somebody. 
Well, now in Christ, we are servants of righteousness. So when I think about, oh, how I love your law, all these things come into play. It's all part of the package. It's all part of the picture. When you say, oh, how I love your law, and you can begin to understand, yeah, I need to be thinking that often. My whole salvation is tied up into this. Okay, I want to elaborate a little bit more on the importance of God's law as we commit ourselves to loving God and then through Christ. So point D is this. In Christ, the law of God has become the law of Christ for believers. The law of God has become the law of Christ. There's a couple times in the New Testament where the moral law, uh, summed up in the Ten Commandments, is referred to as the law of Christ. I don't personally believe that that's referring to a different law. Jesus Christ is God, so the law of Christ is still the law of God. But in the hands in the hands of Christ, it takes on a radically different role in the life of believers. So how is the law of God now the law of Christ to Christians? Let me give you a few thoughts on that. First, it's the law that Christ kept on behalf of his people. If you're a Christian, Christ kept that law for you. God requires all men to be righteous before him. God's law makes it clear to us that we have failed to do that. But in Christ, there's a righteousness provided for us apart from our own keeping of the law. It's a righteousness that he himself performed as the God-man. And it's the righteousness that he earned by his perfect obedience. So when we put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are given this righteousness as a gift. We are perfectly righteous before God in Christ. So in that sense, the law of God has become the law of Christ to us. Second, it's the law that has been inscribed on the hearts. It's been inscribed on the hearts of all who believe in Christ. One of the great promises of the new covenant is that God would write his law on our hearts. Let me read that portion of the promise from Hebrews 8, which is actually a quote from Jeremiah 31. But Hebrews 8, verses 9 and 10. He says, Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind, I will write them on their heart, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So the law that God wrote with his fingers on the tablets, the Ten Commandments, he has now written on the heart of every child of God. It's written on our hearts. The blood of Christ is that blood of the new covenant. And he earned this wonderful gift for every single Christian. And, of course, this ties in closely to being a slave of righteousness because we have that righteous law written on our hearts. So in this way, again, the law of God has become the law of Christ for us. Finally, it's the law that Christ made a point to explain clearly. I mean, if anyone is going to understand the law of God perfectly, it's God. One of the things that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, did during his ministry on earth was to explain the right meanings, right understandings of the the law. God's laws had been often misrepresented, misunderstood, 
by the Jewish people. But Jesus made them more clear. He said things like, yeah, it says do not murder. That also means you're not supposed to hate. He said things like, yes, the law says you should not commit adultery. It also says you shouldn't lust. It goes together with that commandment. So the law of God is the law of Christ to believers because he made it a point to explain it more clearly and make specific applications for us. And again, these laws are given so we would know what it is to be a slave of righteousness. So these are multifaceted things that come to mind when I think, oh, how I love your law. Okay, in that context, let's think about the Ten Commandments. Here's what, this, here's what they say. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Number two, you shall not make for yourself any carved image or any likeness of anything that is, that is in the heavens above or the earth beneath or the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, thousands of generations, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Number four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your manservant, nor your maidservant, nor your cattle, nor your, nor your sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Number five, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. Number six, you shall not murder. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Number eight, you shall not steal. Number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And number 10, you shall not covet your neighbor's house you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his donkey, nor his ox, nor anything that belongs to your neighbor. In these commandments, we see God in his majesty. A fearful majesty, to be sure. In these commandments, we see God exposing our sin. I use these commandments often when I'm confessing my sin to God. That's the standard. I still blow it many times, and so do you. I use that often as a, as a help as I confess my sin to God. And these commandments, we see God revealing himself also as the deliverer who accomplished our salvation in Christ. And it's in Christ that this law of God has become to us as Christians the law of Christ. So yes, Oh, how I love your law. But of course, the psalmist didn't stop there. It was not just merely an emotional exclamation 
of love for God's law and for God himself. It was that. But there was also some application. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. So our second main point to consider this morning is this. Those who love God's law will make application of it in their life. The word used for love, by the way, is most often used where there is an emphasis on being obedient to God's special revelation. So it's love, but it's, it's obedience connected with how, with how God has revealed himself in, in the word of God and here specifically in God's law. So when there is an inward appreciation and love and belief and delight in God's law, there's going, there are going to be outward actions that express that love for him and in his law. One commentator said this. He said, he serves God actively who loves his commandments. Serving God, in other words, serving God actively and loving his commandments go together. Now, the action that's identified in verse 97 is meditation on God's law. So the first application I want to point out to you is this. Believers will meditate on the glorious things God revealed in his law. Actually, that's what we've been doing. That's what I've been doing all morning is meditating on, thinking on, pondering on, trying to understand all the different aspects of what comes into when when a Christian says, Oh, how I love your law. That's meditation. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, this meditation on God's law was both the effect of the psalmist's love and also the cause of it. In other words, here's what he's saying. He's saying he meditated on God's word because he loved it. And he loved God's word more because he meditated on it. The more we meditate on God's law, the more we will understand how it applies in our life. That's why he says all the day. He was seeing applications in his life all the day. Which leads us to our second application. Believers will see God's law as the rule for how to please the Lord in their life. How to please the Lord in their life. The implication here in this verse is that if you're meditating on God's law, you're going to find applications in your life all through the day. And we know from the rest of Psalm 119, that's exactly what the psalmist has done. He has made applications from the God's law in his own quest for purity in his life. He has made applications from God's law with how he has ordered his life in conjunction with what his commandments require. The psalmist had made, has made use of God's, of God's law Every time he was encountering difficult afflictions, constantly going back to what does the scripture say? What does the word of God say? What does the law of God say? And he was regularly asking the Lord to continue to help me grow in my obedience to your law. Now, there's a holy balance we've got to keep in mind here when we think about being obedient to God's law. As we've noted, one of the purposes of God's law is to expose our sin and to pronounce condemnation when we fail to live up to the the law. So we do not focus on obedience to God's law with the thought that we can somehow earn our salvation. We can't do that. There's no way we can do that. The law shows us that the law itself shows us we're not capable of doing that. But as we noted, the law leads us 
to Christ. It leads us to focus on all that Christ has done for us in accomplishing our salvation. And so in faith, we trust Christ for salvation, and that transforms our relationship with the Lord, and it transforms our relationship with his law as well. One of my favorite quotes in that regard is one by John Cahoon. <clears throat> I think he about him in Scottish, by the way. I know we were praying for Scotland earlier. That's why it's not said the way it's written. Cahoon, I think, is how you say it. He said this, The law of works says, Do, or you shall be condemned to die. But the law in the hand of Christ says, You are delivered from condemnation. Therefore, do. The law of God has become the law of Christ for believers. That's an important aspect, I believe, of our love for the Lord. Because of that life-transforming work of grace, we can fully agree, I believe, with the psalmist's words, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Lord, we want to thank you for your word. We thank you for the, again, I thank you for the example of the psalmist someone who had such a healthy and strong and solid relationship with you in a time where things were really difficult for him, things were really hard. But at the same time, he continued to grow in his relationship with you. And one of the most important parts of his relationship with you was his relationship with your word, with your law, with your testimonies, with your commandments. Thank you for what we can learn from that man. And thank you for the things that we can apply ourselves. Lord, help me, help us as we think of that simple little phrase, oh, how I love your law. Help that to lead us to all kinds of different angles in which we can express our love for you by, we, by expressing our love for your law. And Lord, help us to be diligent, to live as slaves of righteousness. As we've already mentioned, we're no longer slaves of sin. We are slaves of righteousness. But at the same time, sin is constantly trying to trip us up, trying to deceive us, trying to get us to be lazy, get us to be whatever, all kinds of things, get us to, to say God's law isn't good enough. I'm going to do it my way. We're always being tempted. But, Lord, I ask that you would help us to walk out our Christian life in a way that is honoring to you, in a way that is consistent with being a slave of righteousness in Christ. Thank you so much for that work that you do for us. If you're one who's never put your faith in Christ, a prayer like this will be a way to start. Lord, I realize, <coughs> just as I think, just even a little bit about what those commandments require, I, had, I didn't do them this week. I can think of many times when either I just actually, absolutely outwardly disobeyed or with my attitude and with my thoughts, I disobeyed. So I know I'm a sinner. I know that. But I thank you that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I want to receive him as my Savior. I commit my life to him as the Lord of my life. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, you can either make a note on your tear-off, or those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website. It is in the name of...